So I've said a few times that <clears throat> the Bible is not about what just happened, but what always happens. And this evening, we're going to look at chapter 5 and 6, and what we're going to see is it's going to feel like a broken record. The same old, same old. The world superpowers king is proud, power got to his mind, and he doesn't know uh, who Yahweh is. He is not submitting to Yahweh, and he needs to be humbled and, and God's people are going to face a tremendous test and great opposition, and yet they're going to get through it with God helping them. That's just a very general idea where we're going to be in chapter 5 and 6. There's a lot to cover, so I'm going to be skipping around. Again, like I've always said, please check my work. If you haven't been reading along, please take a look at it uh, tomorrow, and especially when you get back home. But let me start off with this. This is a historical document. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. And tonight, we are actually going to take a look in chapter 5 at one of the most significant moments in human history. One world superpower being toppled by another. That's a pretty big deal. It's as if the United States would, would be usurped by another country. That's the kind of magnitude of what we're talking about, except way longer reign than the United States and it's important for us to say talk history because chapter 5 can be a little bit disorienting because we have just been following along the, the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, but he's going to just kind of fade away and he's going to reign for about 20 years and then one of his sons is going to take his place. Now, I, I just want to remind you, we've been seeing Nebuchadnezzar's slow discipleship process of waking, it up, waking up to who he is and who God is. And he's been very, a really slow student like me. And he finally woke up, humbled himself after a significant judgment and discipline. And now he, we see this powerful moment at the very end of our last chapter where it seems like there, he was, there was something significant that happened and changed his heart. My, my guess is that in the new heavens and new earth, we will see King Nebuchadnezzar, which is insane because he was an egomaniac. He was a tyrant. He was responsible for the murder of untold thousands of people. And he received the mercy of God. That's how big God's mercy is. This is absurd. When you think about the gospel, you think about the love of God, the mercy of God, it's absolutely absurd, absurd and offensive if you actually think about it. And this is the kind of mercy that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, and that's the kind of mercy he give, he's given to me and is made available to all of us here who receive him. And we'll talk more about that later. But in chapter 5, it's been about 30 years, and we have this new king. There's a lot of background history behind this king if you want to take a look at it. Some archaeological stuff of like, is he really king? And then something was discovered. Like, actually, he was a king. It's super cool. We won't get in that tonight, but take it, look at it another time. Now look at verse 1 with me. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. This feast is something that you probably could never imagine. Imagine a great hall like Harry Potter's like great hall, except bigger. And there's thousands of people here. And this actual hall in Babylon, modern day Iraq, has actually been uncovered. It was massive. And it was not some stately dinner where everyone is in black and white and prim and proper. It's wild. It is wine is flowing. 
There are concubines everywhere. There's just open sex. It's crazy. And what we don't know from the text only to later on is actually the Medes and Persians were actually outside of the city making their way to destroy this empire. So it's likely that King Belshazzar, which was kind of like a puppet king, he wasn't actually number one, he was number two, but he was acting like king, was kind of peacocking. Do you guys know what peacocking is? <laughs> he, he felt very insecure. I mean, this guy has this giant army breathing down his neck, about to dethrone him and his people. And so it, as a way to overcompensate and, be, and, and feel confident, he's like, hey, let's throw a big feast. Let's, let's drink and get drunk and celebrate to our gods. And he goes even further. He said, you know what? We'll lift the spirits. There's nothing like going into the past and remembering what our gods have done for us. So let's do this. Let's go and pull out the temple, the, the, the treasury of the uh, Jewish temple and take their goblets and let's drink out of their goblets as a way to say, look at our God and what he did before. We beat the Israelites. We're going to win against the Medes and Persians. That's kind of what he's doing. And they're getting drunk and they're toasting and they're deeply dishonoring God, defaming his name and mockery, mocking him with their, their reviling. You can imagine how insulting this would be for God. And Belshazzar is going to sober up real quick. He mocked the wrong God, just like his grandfather before him. He thought he had power and control, and God is about to show him that he is nothing. So look at verse 5 with me. Suddenly, they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. This, this archaeologists show that this probably was, would be right where the king is sitting. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. In the Hebrew, this literally says his loins were loose. So he pooped his pants. <laughs> and I know that's funny, but it's the kind of pooping your pants when you're absolutely terrified. I mean, like imagine a human hand just starting to like, float and starting to write on the wall. Like, who's not going to do that, right? Especially if inside your conscience is bearing witness to you that you are deeply wrong and you are right around the corner is death. This is the reoccurring scene we see throughout Daniel. This big old king who feels great and powerful like Nebuchadnezzar is humbled like a beast. And then now Belshazzar is humbled with soiled pants in front of this huge party of guests. So the king, like Nebuchadnezzar, before him is looking for a human solution. So what does he do? What do you, who do you think he called upon for help to figure out who wrote this and what it said? The magicians and the astrologers. He, where, what do these guys do? How do these guys still have a job? But again, like I said last this morning, is that when you are defiantly trying to be self-sufficient, you are going to look for every single alternative except God because you don't want to humble yourself. There's got to be another thing. Whenever you try to solve the divine problems with human solutions, you will always fail. And what happens? They are unable to answer. 
They're unable to read this mysterious writing and interpret what it means for them. And so what does the king do? Verse 9, so the king grew even more alarmed and his face turned pale. His nobles too were shaken. Usually this is something that happens to the king in private while he's sleeping. But in this situation, we're talking thousands of people are witnessing it and they're all shook. What is going on? What does this mean? They have no solutions left, but yet the queen mother, who's still alive, so Nebuchadnezzar's um, wife, queen mother shows up, and he, she recommends Daniel and reminds of Daniel. Look at, look at what she says, though. It's really interesting. Verse 12. Would you read this out loud? And see if you can catch what is so unique about what she says. Read this with me, please. This man, Daniel... He can interpret dreams. What does she call him? What does she call him? Daniel. Throughout this whole book, what do the Babylonians call Daniel? That was just, remember, this is a way that they broke you in and rebranded your identity. And I find this so cool. That after decades of Daniel quietly, with integrity and gentleness and love, standing for his convictions with respect, remember the third way, there's two common ways, the third way, the way that no one else really takes, Daniel's doing it, and after decades of them trying to brand him and break him, they just finally give up. Let's just call him Daniel. (laughs) That's amazing. That is amazing. That's an incredible perseverance of decades and decades of being called the wrong name and him bearing it quietly with dignity because he knows who he is. He knows whose he is. And eventually they just give up. It's so cool. This is so important for you, students. Important for me. The world is always going to try to speak false identities over us, try to redefine us, tell us who we are. Maybe it's even a family member. Maybe it's a parent who said something over you that wounded you, that marked you, stated, spoke identity over you. And I just call you to cling to what God has said about you and let that be the predominant voice that shapes who you are. So Daniel enters the scene. Don't think young teenager Daniel, but we're talking 70-year-old grandpa Daniel. So the king offers Daniel to be the third most powerful man in the kingdom. He couldn't offer him second because he was second, likely. And if he can successfully tell him what in the world is going on. Verse 17, Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts or give them to someone else, but I will tell you what the writing means. Just like the grand, his grandfather before him, Belshazzar thinks that he can buy Daniel. But remember, you can't buy someone who has everything. Daniel doesn't have a price. He knows whose he is. He knows Yahweh. He has the greatest treasure ever. He knows that one day he will inherit all the earth one day. And he doesn't want the counterfeit because he has the authentic. You can't buy a man like that. Don't you want to be that, like that kind of person? Wouldn't that be amazing that you can't not be bought off? Like I said the, last night, everyone has a price, but you don't have to have a price. Students, how do you hold on to your faith courageously despite 
so much oppression or temptation like Daniel did. And it all comes down to who you know. It's not about being courageous. It's not being bold. It's not being made of special stuff that no one else is made of. It's about who you know. And when you know him, then nothing can break you. We finally get to the heart of this chapter. Why is this judgment happening? <clears throat> Daniel preaches to the king that God has placed his family where they are at. He tells him, God put you there. Remember God's sovereignty? God is giving Babylon what they have at this time temporarily. And instead of honoring God in response, they're taking advantage of this good gift and doing whatever they want. And Daniel then starts talking about Nebuchadnezzar, his grandpa, and starts reminding Belshazzar, hey, do you remember what happened to your grandpa? He was this, he was that, he was a beast, and then he humbled himself. And then look at what he says in verse 22. You are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all this, yet you have not humbled yourself. So what does this teach us? When we see others humbled, it is an opportunity for us, a flashing sign from God to say, humble yourselves too. This is a gift for you to experience this happening to your grandpa. Learn from his mistakes. Learn from his humiliation that you are not God. And oh, that we would be like that and we would learn. I can't tell you how many people I've met who said, you know what? I, I want to learn everything for myself. I want to make my own mistakes. I want to try everything once and learn from it. Those people are the dumbest people in the world. You really are not going to see entire civilizations doing the exact same thing as you're wanting to do and then them fall apart and ruin and then you're going to try it again as if you're going to be the exception. He just saw his grandpa go into the wild for maybe seven years like a madman looking like an animal and he's not going to take notes from that? Hmm. Don't be proud. Right? Like, you, know, you know what I'm saying? And this is for us, too, because this is a historical document. This happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's a real man. Just look him up. So it's an example for us to take notes and say, oh, no, no, I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to have to learn that lesson the hard way. I want to humble myself. You don't need to see Nebuchadnezzar. You just saw it right here in this book. That happened to him. Take note, students. I need to take note because I can far too be pleased with myself and how clever I can think I am. But what did he do and said, verse 23, Belshazzar, for you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and had these cups from the temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear or know anything at all. But listen to this. Would you read this out loud with me? But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. This is a worship issue. This isn't a moral issue merely, like he could just improve and try things a little bit better, be nicer. But at the heart of it, it's a worship issue. You have proudly defied the Lord. And who's the Lord? The one who gave you breath. Students, hear me. God has given you breath. He's given me breath. He controls your destiny. You are not your God. God is the only one, the creator, who gives you life and breath and the only one worthy of worship. Not me, not you. 
he says this line too, you have not honored. How do you honor someone? You do it not just with words, you do it with action, attention, finances, energies, your thoughts. All of life honors or dishonors God. And all of Belshazzar's life was absolutely dishonoring to God. Now let's look at the judgment further. Because finally Daniel interprets the writing that God had overwritten. Look at verse 25. This is in Aramaic. This is the message that was written. Mene, mene, teko, parson. We don't know whether they couldn't read it or they just didn't know what it meant. But let's break it down. Verse 26. Daniel is going to start interpreting what this writing is. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. While Nebuchadnezzar had a year before judgment came, this dude has mere hours. Don't assume you have time. Who says you have time? We don't know. If you are holding on to control of your life and not putting it to death, giving it over to God, the rightful owner, you are in grave danger. We can often hear people say silliness like, I can ask for forgiveness later, or I'll repent on my deathbed. I'm going to live it up a little. Let me have some fun. God is gracious, isn't he? Let me do my thing and then get some forgiveness later. If you hear my voice and you have unrepented, unturned away sin and control of your life, you are in grave danger. And Belshazzar, Belshazzar's life and his kingdom was numbered here. But all of our lives are numbered. Look at Psalm 139, 16. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. I know when I say things like this, it could, it could come across manipulative or heavy-handed. But you remember earlier I said what the most loving thing they can do for King Nebuchadnezzar is actually not give him what he wants because he doesn't need to just get worship for himself. That's the most destructive thing they can give him, so that would be actually unloving to him. And the most unloving thing I can do for you this week as I'm trying to serve you with God's word is to not tell you the truth. Nobody likes to be lied and even though we don't like to be lied, sometimes we're like, I don't want to hear that. This is the truth. Every one of you, your life is numbered. God knows the way and the day for each one of you. You don't know that, and you cannot guarantee that. There's never been someone who died young, and the parents thought, well, we knew this was going to happen. <laughs> never. No one ever faces death and thinks, yeah, I knew this was going to happen today. You do not know the way or the day, but one has your days numbered. The next word, tekel, verse 27. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. This means that he has been judged and the verdict is that he is lacking. He's deficient. He's not honoring God. The verdict is clear. He is wicked and he is guilty. And finally, Parson, verse 28. Parson means divided. <laughs> Daniel 5, 28. We have these up there? Nope, that's okay. 5, 28, listen carefully if you can. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. This was prophesied earlier in Daniel chapter two. If you guys remember that, I talked about the sequence of different kingdoms coming. And finally, the kingdom of God would reign over all. 
but mercifully, God is giving Belshazzar a chance. Why is God sharing this with Belshazzar? He's giving him a chance. He's giving him a moment to wake up. He is kind and merciful. Listen, warnings are merciful because he could just go in there and just smash him and me be destroyed and give him no chance to repent. And so he's given a chance to repent, albeit just a few hours, but he doesn't know that. He just knows that he has a chance right now. Will he humble himself? Spoiler alert, he doesn't. Daniel 5.30, that very night, if you see in your Bible, that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is crazy. This is as if Washington, D.C. fell in a few hours from the combined forces of China and Russia or something, like, something crazy like that. And then Belshazzar was executed that night. He had a few hours. He didn't know. He was given an option. He was given a merciful welcome to turn, and he didn't take it. Now, on that note, we're going to chapter 6. I know that was a lot, but we have a lot to cover. So now chapter 6, if you want to turn over, it's a new government. So the Medes and the Persians have taken over, and there's a new government here. And, and now, Nebuch uh, now this king is setting up all these different leaders to help administer the affairs, right? If you take over a kingdom, you can't just take over easily. You have to set up all these people because you're, you're, you're ruling from another country. And Daniel is the same old Daniel. <laughs> New government, same old Daniel. And Daniel is highly ranked immediately. But after his promotion, other leaders get understandably jealous. And they try to find a way to take him down. So first, they're, they're, they're looking at his life. Okay, all right, you, you guys know how they do this in presidential campaigns? They're like, hey, can you find any of the dirt on that person? Right? So like, look at their Facebook searches and their internet searches and Instagram, what they did. They look and they interview past friends and from school, try to scrub their whole life and look at any other ways that they can trip them up so that they can expose they're a hypocrite and they're not worthy of their votes like they are because they're so good, right? So that's what everyone does. And guess what? They try to do this for Daniel and they can't find a thing. Nothing. Can you imagine that? What a life. What a way to live, to where literally a whole team of people and probably all their servants are trying to find some dirt on Daniel and they cannot find it. It's not like he just entered into the kingdom like that year and they're like, oh, we don't know him very well. Like they've been around him for like 60 years and they can't find dirt on him. Oh man, I want to be like that. Don't you? That you have nothing to hide. No matter how hard people look, they can't find anything on you. But there's one thing they can find on him. The one thing that he's consistently done for decades. And that's his relationship with God. They know that Daniel prays at least three times a day with his windows open before heaven. So what do they do? They hatch a plot. Hey, hey, king, uh, let's make a rule where no one can pray to anyone or worship anyone but you. And he's like, that sounds great. That's great and great. And he actually liked Daniel. But in that moment, because of his pride, because he was foolish, he signed the law used his signet ring, and it was good as done, and he could not reverse it. The way the Medes and Persians had their laws, the king could not reverse his laws. And so what happens? Daniel, verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chambers open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day 
and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. (laughs) Daniel doesn't even flinch. He goes and does what he has already done previously. He just went on on his life. You could, you could think about all the justifications. Remember, if you, instead of focusing on faithfulness, a lot of us focus on results. You could think, well, you know, I'm in a high position. I need to be strategic for Yahweh. And so, you know, maybe I'll just start praying with the doors closed. Who says I need to pray the doors open, right? But no, he's like, this is who I am. My relationship with God is the most important thing. And everything else is organized around that. And he commits to it. And what happens? He's immediately caught. They're like peeping toms, like watching him. (laughs) Caught him. He's praying. Of course he's praying because that's what Daniel does. That's the source of his power, his communion, his relationship with God. He's not special. I'm not special. It's just God just being with him. Reluctantly, though, Darius realizes what he's done, and he throws him to a pit to be shredded alive by lions. Now, that movie that we just saw was kind of a silly rendition, but, I mean, you, you have to imagine if you've ever been at a zoo and been near a lion and you thought, and have you ever seen those videos where the lion, like, jumps out the window? You know, they're, like, they're just checking just in case, right? If, if that window wasn't there, you, you and I are done. You're just absolutely done. The lion would just rip us up to shreds. And imagine this lion's den was created for this very purpose, is to, to eat people, and it was a form of torture, a form of, of brutality. It wasn't like he just had a bunch of pet lions sitting around. And so they starve them. They usually agitate them. You get them aggressive, and they throw Daniel in there. And King Darius is distraught. He's up fasting. And he's sleeping, sleepless. And the next morning, he runs down and he goes to the lion's den wondering if God saved him. Because something about Daniel, he's seen that Daniel knows someone that he doesn't know. There's something special about Daniel. And he, he, he hopes and, and maybe assumes that maybe something special happened, some miracle happened. So verse 21, then Daniel said to the king, oh king, live forever. <laughs> My God, send his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. And then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. (coughs) It's amazing. I know stories like this can just go over our heads because you can be familiar with them if you grew up in the church, but just think of the absurdity of being thrown into a lion's den and all these lions can't touch you. It's amazing. This is amazing. Why was Daniel safe? Well, he gives the reason. What did he do? There's a because. Because he did what? He trusted God. And even if he wasn't saved, I'm glad he would say with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if God doesn't save me, I will still worship him alone. I will not bend. God is able, but even if he doesn't. My friend and fellow pastor at my church, Dale, said that in this entire book, we see a simple truth. God wins. God always wins. Even when it looks like he won't, he will. Does Daniel accept this death sentence and put himself in danger by praying if he doesn't believe that God ultimately wins? Not a chance. 
The only way that Daniel could have such boldness and such confidence is that he knows ultimately that God is sovereign. God is powerful. God is the true king. God's supremacy and sovereignty over all things is not just like a high theology, academic thing. It's the very bedrock of what can give you hope. If you understand the end, you can live in the present. And if you understand what ultimately God is doing and what he will do, it will infuse your day-to-day with confidence and security and purpose like nothing else. Again, it's not because Daniel's special, it's because he, he knows God. Daniel knows that God will have the ultimate victory. And when you have God rightly in view, you have nothing to fear. What can man do to you? And so, listen, if you have small faith, small worship, small boldness, small affections, it's because your God is small. Because you don't view him that great. So actually, you're just being consistent and being logical to what you've seen. The reason why some of you shrink back during musical worship is not because you're shy or you're not an extrovert or whatever it is, because God is not that big yet. And I'm not saying that because God is big, you need to look a certain way. We all have different personality types, so you need to be consistent with how God has wired you and how you would act at a football game or something that you're really excited about right? But what I'm saying is that the issue here ultimately comes down to how accurately you see God. The reason why you don't share the gospel with your friends because you're afraid is not because you're afraid or you need better tactics or read another book or understand apologetics or understand evolution or understand, you know, sexual issues of our day. It's because you just don't have that big view of God yet. And when God is small, then your faith in your life is small and you're just logically living consistently with that vision. And the reason why Daniel lived the way he did is because his view of God was so big. And so right. So let's bring it down to the present because we need, this, this is, for you to live rightly today, you have to know the end. And I'm going to skip to Jan- Daniel chapter 12 because Daniel 12 is a really freaky chapter. A lot of fun, very confusing. But there's two verses I want to highlight. So thanks for turning to it. Daniel chapter 12. So I'll give you a second to turn to ja- Daniel 12. We're going to look at verse 1 and 2. We're going to skip the first few words because they're going to sound absolutely bonkers to you. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name is written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Sleep is a common terminology in the Bible of someone who's dead. And the reason why we say sleep is because one day they're not going to be dead. So use sleep, which is a temporary reality, right? And they shall awake. Two options, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt, or in other words, disgrace. So, So let me just make sure that's really clear here. Myself, you, every single person in this room, every single person you know and ever will know or ever have known, there's only two destinations for them. There's no third option. Either everlasting life or shame and disgrace. And again, I love you too much to lie to you. I know 
I know you're at Jesus camp. I know what you, some of you skeptics are coming. You know what today is. It's decision night. Here it comes. Here are the fireworks. Here's the emotional manipulation. Let's, let's build it up. Let's freak you out. I'm just trying to be honest with you. I just want to be real with you. I want to be 100 with you because this is real. This is reality. And I would be a coward and the most hateful person to just coddle you along and just merely talk about how God loves you just the way you are, only the way you are, and leaves you the way you are. And that's all that matters, that you're special. It's all about you. And create a God-centered, man-centered God where Christianity all exists for you and your purposes, and you just kind of tag God along to what you want. That is not true. If that was true, I'd tell you, but that's not true. And I love you too much. And I know in this room we have two destinies and only two destinies. And there's many of you here. And I don't know that number exactly. God hasn't told me, only he knows, that are set right now in a trajectory where you're going to have everlasting, not life, but contempt, shame, and disgrace, and separation from God forever. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for you at all. There's no manipulation in that statement. This is reality. Why? Because just like Belshazzar, Everyone here has writing on the wall for your life. Remember those words from Aramaic. Mene, your days are numbered. Only God knows. It may be soon, next week, or it may be 30 years, but your days are numbered. Yet God has delayed thus far. Do not count God's delay as slowness, but as patience, as First Peter says. He's patient with you. He's so patient with me. But there will a day come. There is a day that's coming when warnings will turn into reality. Tekel, all of us here, including me, remember, I'm under this too. I'm not better than you. This is, this is for me. Tekel, all of us here have been weighed by God's holy scales, holy balance, and all of us have been found lacking. Like Belshazzar, all of us have profaned and violated our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our words. We have not given honor to God as we ought to, the one who has given us breath, our loving, kind God. Just ignore it. Kind of a good, good reminder. <laughs> the world is not as it ought to be. Listen, all of us here deserve swift judgment. I, I mean that for our prideful attempt to be our own God. I don't care if you're a wanna champion or if you've never been in a church, all of us have a heart that's bent towards being our own God, calling our own shots. And listen, at that final day, you're not gonna be weighed comparing to your friends. Can, can you find someone in this room you think you're better than? That you live better than? Someone you know in your family that you're like, yeah, I'm better than them. On the final day, you're gonna be weighed against God's holy standard only. I don't care if you're the, the, the biggest Bible nerd in your youth group. At the end of the day, you're not going to stand in comparison to others, but stand in comparison just towards God and his holy standard for you and for me. But listen, there's good news. <laughs> Remember, in my last session, we're not just serving a God that is sovereign and powerful and mighty, but a God that is gentle and lowly at heart and a God so full of love. So God, in his kindness, made a plan so that God can still be just and uphold his just law and ways and rescue you and me. 
I love how the Apostle Paul says uh, what Jesus did in Colossians 2.13. This is kind of connected to this kind of tackle the handwriting on the wall language. Listen to this. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it on the cross. All of us here have on the wall written all that we've done, all that we will do, and we are rightfully condemned and judged for those heinous, treacherous actions and attitudes, our neglect, our lack of love, our lack of love for God, our lack of love for neighbor, on and on again, we can talk about different sins that you and I can fall into. And here's the insanity of the gospel. That record that is standing above you, condemning you on the block, is then moved over to Jesus. And then Jesus is willingly, lovingly standing in your place and treated as if he did everything written on that paper. Every single thing you and I have done, Jesus is treated as if he is the biggest biggest sinner who ever lived. And yet Jesus is the perfect sinless one who's never, ever done wrong. He's always done right. He's always loved people perfectly. He's always been kind. He's always been gentle and patient and loving. And yet this perfect lamb, this perfect Jesus is treated like he did every, the worst thing you and I can ever think that we've done. All of us here have had done things that we think, man, that was one of the worst things I've ever done. I don't want anyone to know. It's a huge skeleton in your closet. And imagine Jesus being treated as if he'd done every one of ours. That's the insanity of the gospel, that God loved us in this way, that he took on the cross the full weight of all of our sin and absorbed the full wrath of God. He experienced the great lion's den. His body was ripped to shreds like a lion would. He suffered in a furnace that was greater than any furnace that Nebuchadnezzar could create. He suffered and absorbed the full punishing wrath, just wrath of God that you and I deserve, and he drank it all up for you and me because he loves you. As much talk as you can think about God is not fair and this or that, that is not fair. Sinless, Perfect son of God should not have to die for you and me, but he did because he loves you. He absorbed the wrath that you and I deserve. And now, with doing that, there's something what the great theologians call the great exchange. The record that was for us is given to Jesus, and Jesus' record is now given to us. And now, you and I are weighed as holy and worthy. Do you know why I'm going to heaven? It's not because I'm good. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people who are now treated as if they live like Jesus go to heaven. It's because I put my faith in Jesus and because I'm putting my trust and hope in Jesus and turning from my own allegiance to myself to him, then his life, his record is now attributed to me. God considers my life as if I live like Jesus. Isn't that good news, especially if you feel like you have a lot of shame and junk in your past? You are no longer considered, if you're trusting in Jesus, as if you've ever done that, and you are considered as if you've only lived like Jesus. Can you think of a more absurd thing ever? (laughs) It doesn't make sense, but that is the good news, my friends. And if you turn from your own personal reign and trust in Jesus, 
you will no longer have numbered, weighed, and judged over you, but you will see forever forgiven and loved over you. So here's the great opportunity we have tonight. We're going to put up Romans 10.9. I hope you guys saw it on the trail of hope today. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's good to be reminded of the resurrection because Jesus didn't just die for us. He rose again, which was the guarantee that not only was his punishment and his penal- the, the penalty he paid for us was actually accepted and satisfied the law, but also it was the first fruits, the very beginning, and the guarantee that there will be a future resurrection that we read about in Romans uh, Daniel chapter 12. That one day, I will die. If Jesus doesn't come back, I will die physically, but I will only be sleeping. And all of us who are trusting in Jesus will rise again. Heaven will come onto this earth. Death and sin will be no longer. Sickness, disease, mental illness, divorce, tornadoes, all of that will no longer be and God will reign on this earth. The Eden that was supposed to be this earth will spread throughout the world, and God will reign face to face with his people. That is the destiny, and that was made possible by Jesus' death and resurrection, and if you trust in that death and resurrection with all your heart, and you publicly proclaim it, you will be saved on that day. You'll be saved now, and you'll be saved on that day. You'll be saved now. The Holy Spirit will be filling you, and you'll be adopted into a new family. You'll have a new heavenly father, and then you'll be waiting for that day as God can continually transforms you to be like Jesus, and then when he comes back, you'll be with him forever. That is the great story of the Bible, and that's the great story of the world, and that's the most truest thing you will ever hear in your life. So what we're going to do, I'm going to invite the band up. If you haven't declared Jesus as Lord publicly, I'm going to give you a chance to do so tonight. Or maybe, this is another category, you have, but you realize you got right back on the throne and you've been living a lie and you want to fully surrender your life over to him. And when you say Jesus is Lord, it means that God, you're going to let God be God and you're going to give up your battle with trying to be God. Your battle for supremacy, your battle for self-glory, for control, you're going to hand over your dreams, your hobbies, everything, say, God, whatever you want. I'm not going to tell you what to bless anymore. I'm not going to tell you what you're going to do anymore. I'm going to let you tell me what you want to bless and what you want me to do. That's the kind of surrender I'm talking about. Not a little add Jesus onto your life. Maybe get a necklace. Maybe get a tattoo with a Bible verse. No, no, I'm saying all of your heart, all of your life, hand it over to Jesus. That's the kind of surrender, and that's the only surrender. It's all or nothing. Just like, and let me just explain this, because that sounds pretty insane, right? Like, whoa, that's so, so insane. Would you want nothing less for someone you love? Would you ever marry someone who said, well, let me give you just some of my heart. Can I keep some of the numbers of those girls? None of you. And yet for God, we think we can be polytheistic, polyamorous. We can have all these other relationships, other side chicks and side guys or whatever you want to call it. And, and, And God's okay with that. No, 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 it's all or nothing. If Jesus is not Lord over all, he's not Lord at all. And so that's the kind of surrender that we're talking about. And if you're not sure you've ever done that and you want to do that tonight, you want to get right with him, you want to declare him before your friends, out loud, Jesus is Lord, tonight's your night. And so this is what's going to happen. They're going to play a song and it's going to be about what happened at the cross and that Jesus is king over kings and I want you to just start thinking, man, am I right with this God? Your days are numbered. If Jesus were to come tonight, would you be found 
worthy. And again, not did you do good things today? Did you pray and read your Bible? Will you be counted as if you live like Jesus lived? Because you actually put your faith and trust in him. His record is on you. Would that be true of you? And if that's true of you, great. You're my brother and sister. I love that. But if not, I'm so concerned for you. And I love you too much to lie to you. I love you too much to pull punches and not be real with you. That if you don't accept him, the, the merciful gift he's given you, your, your, your fate is a furnace. It's an ever, never-ending furnace of a fire that never goes out. And I don't want that for you. And that's what I deserve, and that's what you deserve, and that's the beauty of the merciful gospel. So they're going to play this song. You're going to count the cost, and when the song is done, I'm going to come up here, and I'm going to invite you to do four things, okay? Stand up, and then don't do that right now. So, sorry. Here, these are the four things I'm going to have you do. Stand up. Shout at the top of your lungs, Jesus is Lord, because he's Lord, whether you recognize that or not. And one day, Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So you just, you do it now for real, or you'll do it there in terror. You do it now with joy, you do it then in regret. And you cry out, Jesus is Lord, and then you sprint up to this area. Some people call it altar, you can call it whatever you want, and just get on your knees, not before me, but before the King of Kings. Just declare your allegiance to him. Okay, so four things. Stand up, cry out, Jesus is the Lord. Run over here, get on your knees, and declare him as your king. And uh, for this next song, you can just think about what he's done. Count the cost. This means the death of your dreams. Just hand it over to him. This is a huge decision. And I just ask of you here, if, if this means nothing to you, would you just respect others by not distracting them for this song? So would you lead us, and then I'll come up and invite you guys. Right, so it's four, four steps real quick. Stand up, and then you're going to cry out, Jesus is Lord at the top of your lungs. You run down here. Get on your knees before the King of Kings. So if that's you, do it in three. One, two, three. Top of your lungs. those who who are making this declaration there is no hoops you have to go through the 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 insanity of the gospel is not just that jesus would die for suffering undeserving sinners but that he would just grant us forgiveness for faith like if you if you trust him he's like all right i got you you're mine now forever i mean this is absurd who is this loving who is like our god And so if you've responded in faith and you believe with your heart that Christ died for you and raised from the dead, you are forgiven. All of your sins are forgiven. All of your shame is removed. Your whole past is like it never happened before. And now you're treated as if you only live like Christ. That's the gospel. And now you're adopted into a new family. You're given a heavenly father who loves you more than up unto death. And he's giving you his spirit to bring you all the way down to glory until he comes back. And that's the absurdity of what we got. And so I want to respond in prayer, uh, in worship. And I want to invite others in this room. If You're like, man, I, I am a Christian, but I just, I, man, lately my heart has gone cold. And I just want to 
bow before my king. I just want to invite you, if that's you, to, to just get on your knees as well in this room. If you just want to acknowledge and just posture physically what you want to do in your heart and say, Jesus, I, I've just not had you as my king. I've, I've not put you as first. I've tried to be like God in different ways. And you want to just get on your knees as well. And then we, can we just sing, um, can we just sing all hail King Jesus real quick? Yeah. So if that's you, just get on your knees and let's just all sing and give our king what he deserves.